Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. Tonight's films show that Tim Burton is a big fish in an ape planet. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin! And I am your pale loner wearing stripes in the corner, just trying to find his place in the world, Thomas Mariani. And I am Adam Animatronic Thomas. Sure. <laughs> Let's go with that. For for those of you who might be new, first of all, welcome to the Double Edge Double Bill. At the end of the previous episode, we picked two movies that are pertinent to our topic, which this week in honor of Dumbo is coming out. And we're doing an episode about Tim Burton, the director who I would argue is sort of the most common example of like an auteur that most normal people would recognize. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, especially people of mine and your generation. Uh, I mean, this guy was like goth kid god. Right, and I always <laughs> use him as an example for auteur theory, which for those of you who don't know is basically the theory that the director has the defining stamp on a movie, and especially throughout his career has several sort of like thematic things and stylistic things that continue throughout their career. I always say, uh, like Tim Burton, where you watch a Tim Burton movie and you know instantaneously, like, oh, this is a Tim Burton movie. Or if you're watching some other movie, like you can tell it's trying to be Tim Burton because we've had imitators, but sure. uh, none quite like the original. And to some extent, in his later career, he's kind of become more of an imitator than he is um, his own older brand of himself. Yeah, he became sort of stagnant. The His uh, sort of ovia or whatever you want to call it sort of just remained the same and the movies just got less and less in quality. Whereas, like you said before, earlier in his career... His look, his tricks, his designs would, you know, constantly be redefined, but still the same thing. You just tweak them with each new movie until you got, I mean, I'd probably say, geez, what, Charlie, maybe? Well, it's so fascinating because, like, his career trajectory, we should say, is, like, he was born in, like, in California in the suburbs, which you can tell he feels so <laughs> diametrically opposite that origin point because he mm-hmm. wants to be, like, this gothic little boy as evidence in his early short film vincent is so autobiographical you can tell <laughs> god edward scissorhands is basically biographical well that's true as well and um he got his start actually as sort of like an animator and he worked for disney in the early 80s around the time of like fox and the hounds or we talked about this previously about when that company was kind of in the dumps and he was sort of put on like hey you do layout on like fox and the hound and everyone realized like this guy's just fucking weird we can't have him do our usual shit. So why don't huh. you just go do something on the corner, which is stuff like the Vincent short or Frank and Weenie, the original short as well. And then they right. eventually fired him and then would <laughs> grovel back like, please, you're actually a commercial brand, which is so weird to me that he he actually is a very incredibly successful commercial director. Because mm-hmm. after this, he would do Pee-wee's Big Adventure was his first movie. Such a surprise. And was 
like a really big hit at the time, and they're like, oh, we'll give you carte blanche to do something a bit more your style, and not be kind of hampered down by Paul Rubens kind of dictating what you want to do. So we got Beetlejuice, which sort of defined a lot of his stylistic choices, and then Batman was his big break, and that also not just changed his career, but also the entire landscape of blockbuster cinema. <laughs> yeah, forever. I mean, from everything to how it was released, to its marketing, to its toy tie-ins and product tie-ins. Batman was 89, so you got to figure he started probably pre-production late 87, 88. So it literally took this guy, what, six, seven years from when he left Disney to get Batman? That's crazy. That right, is and- an Second turnaround. And a lot of that hinged on how well Beetlejuice did. And then Beetlejuice did well, and they're like, oh, okay, so you can do whatever the fuck you want. And <laughs> Batman happens. He, that is, I think, the main reason why. Because, like, he's done several hits later after that point. Sure. But you would definitely argue, like, whenever somebody is, like, doubting, like, maybe we shouldn't greenlight this Tim Burton project. It's like, but man, fucking Batman, right? Beetlejuice, to me, is his perfect movie. But, yeah, it's it's Batman. It was like, dude, I mean... What about that Batman doll? <laughs> Fucking Batman though. With Michael Keaton's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess this is also like from a more personal standpoint, Adam, what is your sort of opinion on Tim Burton? You were more cognizant when he was sort of at his rise in like that point, right? Oh yeah, I remember the Batman craze. Uh, I mean, I think I was on, I was only like six or seven years old, but I remember it because I had all the toys and everything. I was a huge Tim Burton fan. I've sort of fallen off probably like to be honest, post uh, Sleepy Hollow, I didn't really care. And then once our good feature that we're discussing came out, I was like, oh, man, he's still so good. And then post the feature we're going to talk about, I'm like, oh, fuck. I have a very uh, tepid relationship with him I, 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 and with his work. I, I want to like it more than I actually do at this point. I don't know if my personal tastes changed to the point because I grew up and, you know, because I don't want to imply that people are immature for liking Tim Burton because that's not the case. But just I, I think I just my personal taste changed to the point to where I didn't relate to his style as much as I did when I was younger. I was letting you go first for that because when I was a kid, when I started becoming like a big movie person, the the three sort of people that sparked that were Jim Henson, which we've previously mentioned on the show several times, um, Steven Spielberg and then Tim Burton, especially. There was a certain point as a kid where I was, like, not quite a Hot Topic Tim Burton fan, but sure. sort of, like, the guy who thought those guys were posters. So, the most popular <laughs> kid of right. all. Yeah. Um, right. Where, like, people would say, like, oh, man, my favorite Tim Burton movie is Nightmare Before Christmas, and I'd be the dude's just like, he didn't direct that, though. That's not him. That's... Yeah. And I would especially get pissed off when, like, around the time Coraline came out, people were saying, like, oh, it's a Tim Burton movie. I'm like, that's... It's not him. It's not yeah, him. I know, I know. Like, so I, I was such a great guy to be around. So right, just a joy at the lunch table. Exactly. <laughs> so many friends. The most popular yeah. kid. It's somewhere lost to time. I was such a big fan of Tim Burton. I designed a like land for Universal that was Tim Burton land. Like oh, a gosh. section of Universal Studios that was all Tim Burton stuff. That's, That's adorable. Yep, I I was like in middle school and I was just... I was going to say it was like last week. (laughs) (laughs) I I had the design, the schematics, I want to show you, Adam. (laughs) Tom, so I don't know if they'd be able to have Batman in the Universal Park. Shut up. They'll totally be able to do that. (laughs) You don't worry about it. What do you know about anything? Um, How do you feel about him now? 
well, our two films we're talking about tonight, we should mention, are um, the good feature that we ended up randomly selecting at the end of our last episode was Big Fish, and then the bad feature was Planet of the Apes, which follow each other directly, and I think are a very sort of fulcrum point in his career, in yeah, terms I mean, of his, for a lot of reasons that we'll get into with both those movies. But after that point, I remember Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was the first one that I didn't give any doubt about like, oh, I don't quite like this. And then Corpse Bride was a similar thing. And then I liked Sweeney Todd. And then really it was Alice in Wonderland was like the Oh the, the death sh- wall. That yeah. was the shattering point. I'm just like, oh God, what have I done with my life? <laughs> that was like <laughs> that was such a fun, it, was, it felt like I had a midlife crisis when I was like in the middle of high school with that just like Jesus while, while you're looking at your schematics ugh I just tore it apart to find myself <laughs> I tore it apart they're just like it's all ruined ruined in the rain why exactly yes from there I've, I've just been in a similar sort of hot and cold state with him where mm-hmm. I, I think the biggest problem with him as a director honestly has been whenever he's really tried to branch out and it doesn't quite work in the way that would, like, you know, benefit his style and his success. That's the big thing. Is when your third movie's fucking Batman, you really judge success on a certain level. And I think that's always been a, like, sort of hindrance for him, where the moment something he does doesn't quite work, he pivots back to, let me do what I usually do. Let me do what the audience is like. You know, it hinders him from really being able to expand beyond what he usually does. And I, I think it's especially clear in our two movies that we should, I guess, get started talking about here. Sure, right? sure. All right, so let's start with our good feature from 2003, Big Fish. From the imagination of director Tim Burton. Most men, they'll tell you stories straight through. It won't be complicated, but it won't be interesting either. You were hot stuff back in Hitville, but here in the real world, you got squat. Now, I may not have much, but I have more determination than any man you're ever likely to meet. Discover an adventure as big as life itself. Big Fish. So, uh, Big Fish uh, came out in 2003, December 10th, 2003, directed by Tim Burton, written by John August, who would be later a very recurring sort of screenwriter for him, uh, based on the novel Big Fish, a novel of mystic proportions by Daniel Wallace. And uh, this is after our other feature we'll talk about in a bit, and I think was sort of a point where it could have been the big turning point for his career. Because I would argue this is the first movie where Tim Burton depicts anything that would resemble our authentic reality. Yeah, I can agree with that. It's, I mean, obviously there's fantastical in it, but the scenes that take place in the present, especially. Right, and especially revolve around our main protagonist in this movie. Because I think in mm-hmm. his other movies where there was a real world, it was still like a very stylized, silly version. Like in Edward Scissorhands, for example, that's like a depiction of suburbia, but it's a very exaggerated sort of satirical take on suburbia in a lot of ways. It's very colorful, very exaggerated, very silly. Uh, very pastelish. Versus any of the scenes that t- take place in reality here are a lot more sort of stark and a lot more grounded. Like any of the scenes, especially where it's just like Billy Crudup talking to anybody, it feels mm. very much like this is just like a very naturalistic environment. And I think that's where I wish he kind of took more of this with throughout the rest of his career is I think this movie does such a great job of melding his sort of bigger fantastical nature with a more grounded sensibility that I wish he kind of 
did a better balance of from here on in. No, I agree. Now, do you think that might be because it's not his original story? Well, I think what a big part of it is, I didn't find this out until I was doing research for the behind the scenes stuff on this movie, is that um, John August actually adapted this not too long before the actual book came out. He read the manuscript and was like, I have to adapt this because my dad recently passed away. And I relate to this so much. I want to do this. And the first director to get it was actually Steven Spielberg, which makes a lot of sense. This feels so much like it could have been a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah, 100%. He was going to do that with uh, Jack Nicholson attached as the Edward Bloom character. Yeah, now, you know, just to keep on that fact, why was Tim Burton going to try to keep Nicholson on and then de-age him for the young Edward Bloom? I right. mean, could you imagine that? If that would have happened, literally, this whole movie could have stayed the same except for that, and it would have ruined the movie. It would have been a disaster at 2003. Yeah. Like, we just started getting to the point where, because like Captain Marvel recently came out when we were recording this, and they kept up de-aging for a whole movie, and I would argue it worked pretty well. It, for Samuel Jackson. Yes. Right. Hard I mean, there's, there's other things. We, <laughs> yeah. we, we won't get into that. But um, they just got that technology right, and it's fucking 16 years later. So I, it would have been a disastrous mistake. But also at the same time, if you had kept Jack Nicholson and tried to cast a younger actor, that also would have been a mistake, because we know what Jack Nicholson looks like young. We've seen Jack Nicholson ever since his, like, babish days in Roger Corman. We know what he looked like as a kid. And I don't think you could have gotten any, unless you got, like, fucking Christian Slater. I'm sure he was begging to do it. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> so you know who would work, dude, honestly? Mm-hmm. It's like a Steven Dorf would have worked. I, I'm not, I I'm, not saying, I'm saying as far as looks. I'm not right. saying as far as caliber. But no, that's well, that's the problem with young Jack Nicholson. And then you put him out, and he's Satan. You know what I mean? That's that's crazy. Exactly. Which I think is the big thing about this movie is that what works about Albert Finney and Ewan McGregor in this movie as Edward Bloom is the fact that that character the whole time, what I like throughout the movie is you get why everybody would like him, but also there is that stagging suspicion about like, but he could be a piece of shit. Like you get why Will has that suspicion about him because he has more of this upfront you know, face to him about just like, oh, th- here are my fantastical stories, here are my adventures, look at me and my ego. You get why Will would have that perception of him because of how guarded he kind of is as a person, but at the same time, how kind of warm he presents himself. I think that's the main reason why this movie works, is both Finney and Ewan McGregor capture that beautifully. You know, by R.I.P. Albert Finney, but yes. recently passed. Yes. Why well, I like it so much Yes, they are the same character, and yes, at times they do feel like the same character. But I like that when he's, it's in the past, and it's you and McGregor playing the part. It's a more fantastical version, right? Natural where, to the story, yeah. Right, and it. I I didn't catch that when I first saw this. I didn't know that's what they're going for. In fact, I'm like, why? Well, they're not really playing it the same way. Well, they're not supposed to be. You know, it's it's what he saw himself as when he was telling other people and it, it just works so well it, it just god i love this damn movie thomas when i saw this when i was a kid for the first time in theaters i only known Ian mcgregor as like oh it's obi-wan like that's all i knew him as and this was i think the first movie to make me realize like oh this guy's a really great actor because he does such a great job of being such a whimsical charming hero that he mm. makes even certain things that are shaky about the movie, especially as I've gotten older, kind of feel shaky. 
you instantly are still swept up in what he's doing. Like, especially the Allison Loman stuff where he is, like, romancing her, on paper, mm-hmm. is kind of sweaty because it's definitely kind of borrowing on older cinematic tropes of, like, I saw her just in the crowd for the first time and I had to know everything about her and I had to go up to her, having never talked to her and, like, say how much I confess my love. On paper, that's really creepy. And especially if you had, like, a Jack Nicholson, that would feel like he's oh going to murder you. <laughs> right. <laughs> But when when Ewan McGregor, like, comes up with, like, the lilies, you are just like, you know, I want to be swept away by Ewan McGregor, too. Right. <laughs> I'm totally down for this shirt. <laughs> God, could you imagine if it was Nicholson? Especially with old man Nicholson voice? Because they're going to de-age his voice. I, right. I know you don't know me, but I saw you at the circus. I got you all these lilies. <laughs> Come on down here. Now! <laughs> oh, God! <laughs> right, versus Ewan McGregor, he is so like that smile and his oh, I know. Ear to ear. It instantaneously just like so charmed by. It. I think it's the same reason why something like a Moulin Rouge works for me. I know you're not as big on musicals. I'm sure you're not the biggest fan of that movie necessarily, but stand that movie. <laughs> right. But you would I, I think you can agree that without Ewan McGregor it would be much worse than it already is to you. You know, I don't think it would matter for me to be honest with you because it still okay. it still has John Leguizamo in it. So I mean, there's a lot of other issues with that movie, but I think it's it's the same reason why some of these sort of like sweatier premises work to me in some of these other movies that he's done. But he has such an instant charm and such an instant gravitas that comes out of him that instantly it's just like you know I totally am on board with you, dude. I totally get why you would make this giant do whatever you wanted to or <laughs> let have Danny DeVito hire you instantaneously or any of this other shit. He just has that instant kind of charm and determination that fits perfectly for this idealized version of his character, which also works for Albert Finney, because Albert Finney, admittingly, on paper, it's also another character where it's like, this guy's a piece of shit in terms of, like, when you're initially introduced to him. it's If another actor were to do it without that same warmth and that same charm, but also that same fragility of being that old, you would kind of be more reluctant to accept him. Because when I was a kid, I instantly, like, went on to him hook, line, and sinker. And I'm like, oh, yeah. crud up, how dare you even doubt this man? He has so many great stories. He's such a right. charming gentleman. How dare you? And this watch especially, I, 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 people often downplay, I think, Billy Crudup in the movie. I've heard some people say that, like, oh, man, he's so kind of facile and boring and awkward. But with this rewatch, I just realized that's exactly who this dude would be with a dad like right. this. Oh, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. He has no idea who his father is. Right, and more importantly, he feels like he's got to keep on, you know, kid gloves to not only protect himself, but his wife and everything else from him. You know, and even his mother, he he resents him a little bit. So when he's telling him stories, he's like, yeah, okay, sure, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. He's just so bored by it all. Right, but he would become this guy who's obsessed with facts, like he's a newspaper reporter at the beginning of the movie. Also, they do such a great job of displaying a media, like, he is boring, but by choice. He is this guy who is obsessed with fact and not with, like, being super elaborate or having, like, these tall tales because he was raised by this guy who wouldn't stop telling stories. Would, could not stop, like, over-inflating this. And he thought it was more of an ego-driven thing. But what I love about this movie, especially upon this rewatch, is how much it becomes him, not necessarily totally making up with his father, but right. as much as, like, accepting who his father was and that it wasn't necessarily malicious. We'll talk about that ending, which is... Yeah. Gangbusters, tears, oh, everything. God. Every time. Every what, time. What works about that ending is the fact that it's him accepting the fact that 
the reason you told these stories wasn't like to hide an affair or just for your own ego or any of these other things. It's because you regretted not being there for me. Right. You wanted to make reasons why he wasn't there more exciting. Yes. And that's you know, yeah. beautiful. That's such like, a beautiful oh, yeah. way of displaying all this. And mm-hmm. then admitting that because at the same time, it doesn't let Edward Bloom off the hook. It does show that like he kind of buys into these tales and he has an ego and all this other stuff. But at the same time, the reason he created these stories wasn't just out of the case of like trying to downplay how much of a bastard he was as much as just show off that like, look, the only reason I wouldn't be around you is because I'm living these wild, fantastical adventures. And the movie also displays that some of those might have been true to a certain extent, but not sure. as over elaborate necessarily, which I, I just love how it displays all that. But we'll get into all of that in a bit. Because mm-hmm. there's so much other stuff to talk about with this movie. Amongst the other cast, um, we should give credit to... Uh, I mentioned Alison Lohman, um, mm-hmm. who I think is fine in this part. We've talked about with, like, Drag Me to Hell. Mm-hmm. I think she's a person who works mainly dependent on the director, necessarily. And I think Tim Burton, obviously, isn't always the best with female characters, especially. Like, Alison Lohman's like, she's fine. She does an acceptable job, which is sort of like a love interest role for Elon McGregor. But Jessica yeah. Lang as the older version of that character. Well, I mean... Is perfect. Yeah, dude. I mean, she's Jessica Lang. This is Jessica Lang, like, when she decided, you know, I'm going to come back and just blow everybody's socks off. Right. With how good I can be. And, she, yeah, dude, she's fantastic in this movie. There are so many just amazing little performances in this movie. Right, but what makes Jessica Lang so crucial is the fact that she also kind of feels like an inspiration for Billy Crabb's character in terms of she's mm-hmm. also very quiet in, in, in comparison to uh, Edward Bloom. She isn't yeah. very showy. She's just sort of like quietly by his side, but not in a way that feels reductive necessarily as and much as... Still defensive of him. Right. You know, still. And, and the thing is, too, because she's protecting what he was trying to do. She knows what Edward was trying to do with the stories. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want her son to resent him. Right, you and know, she so. also, she's probably the only person that knows the exact person Edward Bloom was, and mm-hmm. why he would tell these stories. And there's so much, many beautiful moments between her and Albert Finney that display a lot of that, like, oh, the bathtub, the bathtub scene. Oh, son of a bitch. I'll never dry out, Adam. Oh! <laughs> that Every also, time. the scene where she, like, kisses him on the hand before she leaves the hospital, the last time they're together in, the, in a scene, uh-huh. in reality, um, is such a, like, beautiful moment that says, everything about those two characters and how they really do love each other and that they oh, have such no a backstory yeah. and a relationship together that we don't necessarily see the actual thing and we see the fantastical version of it with like Alison Loman and Ewan McGregor but you can tell like that says so much about whatever their reality was that, like they probably just met in Auburn and they had like a genuine romantic connection from there had like a facile familiar life but one where like they really loved each other at the same time. It displays all of that without saying a single goddamn word, which I don't think is common, honestly, for Tim Burton movies at this point. I think he lacks a lot of that subtlety, and this is one of the great examples of, like, that feels like a real intimate moment that I don't think he's ever quite displayed before or since. Let's put it this way. I never got emotional at a Tim Burton movie, really, uh, except for this one. I mean, this one just hits all the right notes, and he films it very well. And he—he's obviously giving his actors proper direction. I mean, it. God damn it! Now you got me thinking about the scenes that I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever dry out. No, you're 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 the wettest boy in the land for sure. Whoa, hey now. <laughs> um, but let's talk about some of these other people. You, uh, sure. Who's your favorite, like, of the supporting cast? 
Oh, dude, Northern Winslow. Steve Buscemi kills me in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking poem he's writing. <laughs> and he's been working out for, what, like 10 years or whatever. It's like one sentence so far. Isn't it weird this is the only Tim Burton movie Steve Buscemi's ever been in? Oh my god, that is weird. I never even thought of that. That's he, very strange. He, he looks, looks like, like a Tim Burton, Burton character. Actor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he looks like Tim Burton sketched him from whole cloth and brought him to life pretty much. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Just slapped the eyes of Frog on there. Um no, he's he's really good in it. And of course, you know, Danny DeVito's always delivers. At least I think he does. Well, especially in Tim Burton movies, he does such a great yes. job. He, he feels really like the most blue-collar Tim Burton figure he could ever quite get, necessarily, mm-hmm. which is great. I've, I always love Batman to be in these movies. Uh, but to get back to Steve Buscemi, what I also like about him is he has just like a great comedic timing in this movie, especially the bit where Eagle McGregor's Inspector and they're doing the whole big turnaround with like Loud and White oh, and Missy Pyle, and he's in the background. <laughs> Yeah, hopping Hop, along. like hopping along so he can be in his high line. Great. Oh, it's so funny. I'm tired of Helen Bottom Carter, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Not that she's not doesn't do her job here or whatever. It's just yeah, she's she's not exactly. I don't think she's really giving it her all either. I don't know if I quite agree with that because especially um, one as the witch character, meaning that's just like it's the most Tim Burton part of the whole movie. Yes, absolutely. Character mm-hmm. that opening bit, which I do love, just like really established a sort of fantastical tone of like the flashback sequences, including with um, little baby Miley Cyrus in there as one of uh, Edward's friends. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and it's st- it's. I mean, she still looks the same now. Right, she's just she, she's stretched so out pretty much. Yeah, that's it. She's got a little taller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah in that that opening scene i think she does such a great job of establishing at least sort of the menace but at the same time the weird sort of connection that edward has with the fantastical at the same time where ed's not afraid i will also say i think her second role as the adult version of the young girl from specter i think it does a great job of at least establishing the fact that it's our first indication that someone outside of like the family unit has a similar connection to Edward in the eyes of Billy Crudup. I think she's very crucial to that point, and I think she does a really great job of establishing that, where she's like, I mean, you know, I was a young kid, and I had a crush on him when he came in, but I grew up, and I became so much more cynical and bitter, and he came in, and it showed that he actually cared about people outside of his family. That he actually didn't care just about himself, that he did have a true passion for the community of what Spectre was. And that she even was, like, so attracted that she thought it was, like, an actual romantic attraction, and then he spurred away from that. I think that she does such a crucial job of at least establishing that big point of the movie, that Edward wasn't a womanizer. That he had, like, a genuine charm, but at the same time, it's like, no, he he ignored my advances. He didn't want that for a variety of reasons. And I think she does a great job of establishing that without necessarily being too over-the-top a character. I think that's her bigger problem in her later Tim Burton performances is she's way too over-the-top and way too much more manic. Whereas here, I think she has a better job being reserved and quiet and like a woman who's had a clear amount of regret in her life. I mean, I can't really disagree with you on, on any given point. Just I think the problem with me is I, I, I'm used to being her so manic and crazy that it just felt kind of like a such a toned down performance maybe it was a little jarring for me i don't know i mean she did fine it worked but i could have seen anybody else doing it too i don't think that her performance served the character or the character served her performance in any way 
Well, you know who I couldn't see anyone else possibly doing a particular role is my personal favorite, the underrated MVP of the whole movie, which is Deep Roy as Mr. Saki Bottom. Nobody else can beat Mr. Saki Bottom. Dude, dude, he shows up with the revolver and he's, he's crying. <laughs> The, like, that just that is like Tim Burton in a nutshell is that image of like sad oh, sad clown who opens up his chest and there's a little place where a silver bullet gun is mm-hmm. it's exactly who that guy is and th- that does lead to the werewolf twist which I honestly forgot about until I rewatched it this time it's been so long and of course the piece de resistance is Dan DeVito transformed has a brief moment with Edward like go go find it and then has his foot come up to his chin and scratches his ear. I know. <laughs> uh, but no, and, and one thing too, I do want to go back to uh, Ewan McGregor real quick. I love how young Edward is so cocksure of himself mm-hmm. and like tough. Well, so that John can rip you apart with his bare hands. Oh, trust me, he'll have to try. <laughs> you know, just like that. Like, okay, well, go at it, Edward. And we should also mention Matthew McGrory who is sort yeah. of like, this is his most famous part and works perfectly because he has the, like, obviously the size and intimidation, which is actually most of them through forced perspective and pretty well, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a couple points where it's CG and it's not the best. Like, when he's sifting the house at one point later, not the best. Yeah. Uh, but, like, when it's him and Ewan McGregor talking to each other, that feels perfect. Like, it's like Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson era style forced perspective that works perfectly. But he also, I, I love how sort of very gentle he literally is as a giant when he's just like no, I don't want to eat anybody I just I'm so hungry <laughs> and the actual the costume design for like him when he they tailor make the suit for him I love too and it feels like every story kind of seems like it's Tim Burton recalling something similar that he had done in earlier films or like the stuff with the giant feels very Pee Wee's Big Adventure the stuff, yes oh absolutely uh, the stuff where Edward especially is like he, the whole thing about like my, I just couldn't stop growing and my body couldn't keep up with my ambition, uh, especially when he's in the bed at very Edward's sister hands, I would argue. Um, yeah. And uh, even like the stuff where it's Edward when he's in, like a young adult and he's going off and he's kind of charming, grinning ear to ear. Very similar to Edward. Yeah, no, I agree. It's definitely all of his tricks on display. Um, And it just works. Yeah. It works fantastic. I mean, even the stuff with the witch and whatnot. I mean, that's Sleepy Hollow or the production right. design for Nightmare Before Christmas or any of that stuff. I mean, it's the, the house in Beetlejuice, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it's a shame where, like, either he should have stopped at this point, because while I don't think it's his best movie, it's one of his best ones. And either he could have just stopped here, like, that would have been a perfect bookend to his career, or really could have just kept going into more movies that had, like I said, grand sensibility, but didn't go too far from the fantastical at the same time, because he did Big Eyes later, which isn't a bad movie, but you can tell he's kind of bored doing it. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've made fun of it on this show, I don't know how many times. I've <laughs> never seen it, because it just looked so bland. It was fine. It's, it's just like the definition of, like, it's a fine it movie. Exists, it exists, right? It's literally it's di- directly in the middle of his filmography for me. <laughs> or just, right. Because you can tell that at the same time, he's not as interested in telling, like, the story that doesn't have much of anything fantastical. Like, there are a few sort of moments where there's hallucinations for Amy Adams' character, but it does definitely feel like it's his most grounded movie, and I think at the same time he feels kind of bored doing that. 
So uh, this is such a great blend, and I wish you would keep on doing more movies that blended the fantastical with the grounded elements here. Because when this came out, it was sort of poised to be his big um, sort of Oscar push. This was going to be sort of like the the movie that was going to like usher him into like a massive acclaim. Because before this, obviously, he was a very successful filmmaker, but critics were just like, oh, it looks very well designed, but come on, tell a real story, Tim. Do something right. with a bit more like umph to it a bit more you know actual weight and this one did and people were like yeah but it was good but it didn't it wasn't nearly as big a success as some of his other movies it made about 120 million dollars which isn't anything to sneeze at but for tim burton that's just like but that's just okay I, right. it didn't make batman money so people aren't as interested well, i gotta go back to doing charlie and the chocolate factory or whatever the hell uh... Well, it I looks think... like he might be going back to this well for Dumbo. I mean, Dumbo looks very similar to some of the stuff in this one, at I least mean, by preview standards. Some, if you, well, it feels exactly like specifically the circus set yes. piece of the movie. Yeah. Um. To the to be, speaking of elephants, though, the that bit where the elephant where he's just like daffodils and the elephant's just like shitting right next to him, completely improvised. That was not supposed to happen, but obviously wonderful moment expert yeah, use yeah. of del of elephant dung as much as i don't think that um big fish is like his best movie it's one of my favorites of his it's like top five around there but the last 15 minutes or so of this movie i think is the best filmmaking tim burton has, has ever done in all honesty i think it's, yeah, such I a, agree, yeah. it's such a perfect encapsulation of like his humor his sort of ability to make weirder turns and sort of like bigger blockbuster cinema, his um, work with like weird, but connected characters and fucking contrasting that perfectly with Billy Crudup telling the story and Albert Finney dying right next to him is immaculate. It's flawless. It's so beautiful that it makes some of the sweatier stuff that happens earlier in the movie click perfectly. It's so beautifully done. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, I'd argue it's one of my favorite, I don't, you can't even really call it a third act, it's the last 15 minutes, but one of my favorite ending pieces, God, since the movie's come out, mm-hmm. I can't think of one. I mean, any time, every time I see it, not only do I smile huge because how silly it is in parts and fantastical, but it also is just such a gut punch, too. You're like, oh, God damn it. Don't let him go in the water. <laughs> you know, make him live more. It, it's it's such a great way to wrap up this father son story. But at the same time, you like you're like, oh fuck, uh, you just trying starting to accept it, who his dad was. And you, God, I wish they could have more time. Fuck you for picking this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I got really emotional, especially this time watching. It did its perfect job because the moment after this movie was done, what did I do? called my fucking dad because of course i did because <laughs> oh, of course that's oh. what this movie makes you do the moment yeah. you watch it's just like fuck i gotta call dad it's been a bit and I, I it does such a great job with that and then even leading into the funeral scene where you do see all those people come about and they're just off enough to where they're based in reality like matthew mcgrory is actually like just seven feet tall as opposed to like 12 and right. uh the 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 two Chinese twins are actually separated apart, which we didn't talk about, but that's also a really fun scene. That kind of feels yeah. like, especially his sort of like Batman style, especially like the scene where he turns off the lights as a night vision feels right out of like 89 Batman. Oh my sure. God. And 
dude when he walks in and the two guys are like doing kung fu and shit yes. flipping over each other and over the tables oh god i laugh so hard every time because it's just such a production that he puts on those stupid little glasses turns the light out right but then the fact that the twins are like not actually having siamese that they do separate from each other and all that but i also like the fact that they do a great job of hinting just in that moment that like oh see buscemi got together with one of the twins at some point yeah Right, it's just exactly. done without saying a single word about it. Just like, oh, he built this connective bridge th- to all these people. That that's that's what really matters. The fact that these stories might have been over the top and silly and fantastical, but he brought these weird, disparate people together in a beautiful way. I think that just that's such a great way of sending off that character and perfectly encapsulating why he might have been silly, might have been over the top, he might have been you know a guy that had a bit of an ego to him. But at the same time, his storytelling and his charm and his wit gravitated people to him and then by proxy to each other. And that mm. can't be ignored. Uh, no, yeah, absolutely. God, that was very, uh, that was eloquent. No, there's just, there's a through line of some form of truth to everything he said. And it's like, you gotta, that's the beauty of the story. It's kind of up to you and even the Billy Crudup character to decide what parts you want to believe in or, you know, in his case, pass on to your child and how you want to remember your dad. God damn it. Now I'm getting all choked up again. Yeah. You, you fuck butt. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that eloquent, beautiful note of fuck butt, Adam, go ahead and go into your final thoughts. Um, I don't know if this is my favorite Tim Burton movie either. Uh, but I'd put it right up in my top three, to be honest. It's definitely one of my favorite Ewan McGregor movies. It, it's it's just such a beautiful father-son m- movie, and you don't get a lot of those. I mean, you really don't. Not anymore, anyways. And uh, it's just, it's so well done. The fantastical scenes have such a whimsical sort of nature to them, but it fits right in with the sort of muted palette tones of reality, and, and just... Everybody gives a gives if not a capable performance, a fantastic performance. And I also London Wainwright in this movie just creeps me out for some reason. He's fantastic at it, but he's just scared. He's just creepy with that big grin of his. He's always got. Well, because Spectre no, feels basically like the Stepford Wives town, like something's off. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's so <laughs> weird. But no, I, I just I think this is just a fantastic, fantastic movie. But yeah, I can't recommend this movie enough. I think this was a fine, fine choice um, for something not as on the surface as Tim Burtony as one would expect. But there's still a lot of Tim Burton in here. Yeah, you can tell. Just like there's certain things that are distinctively Burton, like the moment you see Danny DeVito with that fucking hat on it's like oh that's a that's a fucking tim burton oh, it's a tim burton design let's see deep roy and colossus you're like oh, okay yeah this is this is tim burton yeah, <laughs> you know sure it's 100 yeah and i think that's it's why that this one's resonated a lot more of his movies since the sort of dawn of the new millennium it feels definitely like the one that's sort of the most personal because it, it's interesting tim burton when this movie was being made was actually at the same point as billy crudup where his both his parents had just died and he was about to have his first child with Helena Bottom Carter. So he was mm-hmm. literally in the same position. 
So you can tell there's a lot of personal stuff coming into this. Not necessarily autobiographical, but definitely a lot of care and attention to the idea of like someone like a Billy Credit being kind of distant from his parents. He apparently, Tim Burton didn't have as close a relationship with his parents as he wanted to, from what I'd heard. But at the same time, he has like such an affection for the idea of like storytelling and what that means, especially from a generational standpoint. And it could have sparked, like I said, something bigger and better for his career. And instead, was just kind of like a one particular snapshot of a moment in his life. And from here, just kind of made a lot more sort of soulless cash-ins. There's some movies of his I've liked since, like Sweeney Todd I like, or um, even his Frankenweenie remake I thought was cute for what it was. But he's never made quite a movie as impactful and one that seemed to at least mean as much as this one does. And, you know, even with some of the stuff they have issues with, it happens especially... Uh, we didn't even mention Marion Cotillard is completely wasted in her first English-language role here. Just yeah, kind of there. Fine. Even with all those issues, the sort of imperfections that happened earlier on make that, like, last 15 minutes work so well. Because you can tell, like, these are stories that don't have a lot of continuity with each other necessarily when you think about it. They feel like the stories of, like, uh, that a dad would tell. It... it, it feeds off that energy of like when you're younger and your father tells like the same jokes the same stories over and over again you're like dad I've heard this a thousand times but each time they almost have these new details that sprout up that he didn't intend to because he kind of forgot how he told the story the first time and that's sort of the beauty of it is the fact that these stories don't quite connect as well as they should but there's the through line of who Edward Bloom is as a person, who he wants to present himself as and the person he wishes he could be, but also the person that he is. And that's what, you know, makes that last 15 minutes work because, you know, on any logical level, it's like, this doesn't work for a variety of reasons, but that doesn't matter at all. That's not the story that this is, as Billy Crudup kind of says at the beginning of the movie. This is the kind of story that it is. Not all of it was true, not all of it really happened, but it's what it is. I think that's such a great sentiment. And that's why short of, I would say, like, Ed Wood, Beetlejuice, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Edward Scissorhands, this is also, this is like the fifth spot for me. Oh, these are Those are the five movies I would say, like, anybody who's never seen Tim Burton before, those are the five to see. Because I think that just encapsulates him as a creator so wonderfully. But now, uh, let's get to that. Complete opposite <laughs> of the spectrum with the movie that preceded Big Fish, his remake from 2001 of Planet of the Apes. In a world where freedom is history. Where am I? What is this place? Get him out! And get him clean! Brutality is law. Rise when you must turn to... The powerful rule by fear. Next you'll be telling us these beasts have a soul. <laughs> is there a soul in there? Some humans have escaped. Kill them all. Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes came out in, on July 27, 2001. Um, and the most interesting thing about having this be our bad choice was the fact that um, I found out so much about the various attempts Fox had at trying to reboot this franchise. It's amazing, isn't it? It's... I, I don't want to... I, I don't think we can go through all of this, but it's so fascinating that... Because obviously, okay, this is a remake of the original Planet of the Apes, which was in 1968 
was based off the novel by uh, Pierre Boulet, though apparently, obviously, they changed a lot for that Charlton Heston movie, but obviously that's a classic of science fiction, and was arguably the first sort of big franchise Hollywood movie. Wow, yeah, I never really thought of it like that. I'd say The Planet of the Apes is the first big, big franchise. I mean, there was, what, five? Yes. The originals? Yeah, because there's Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest for the Planet of the Apes, and uh, Battle. <laughs> Which I have a bit more respect for upon rewatching this movie. Oh, absolutely. Oh, are you kidding me? They're, they're like fucking Scorsese compared to this movie. <laughs> no, I mean, because I actually didn't go through the original series until fairly recently, like the, right before Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, I did that. I watched all the old ones. What we were getting at earlier was the fact that um, after Battle kind of bombed in like 1973, in the late 80s, there were several attempts to get this franchise back off the ground from Fox, including one that Adam Rifkin was going to do that was sort of like the Roman Empire sort of sequel that was going to involve a descendant of Charlton Heston's character. Um, a Peter Jackson version that was going to be like the Renaissance era that was going to try and bring back Rodney McDowell. Um, mm. There was the Oliver Stone produced version that was going to star Arnold Schwarzenegger. Which is mind blowing. Uh, <laughs> um, that was also apparently going to involve apes playing baseball, per suggestion of the studio. <laughs> that's they... one of my favorites. And, I mean, what if, like, you go and they're playing baseball and they need, like, a pitcher or something? <laughs> a real <laughs> quote from an executive. <laughs> I know. So, so basically, this idea is that the human would be a slave for their baseball game because they needed a pitcher. Uh, several attempts throughout the 80s and 90s to do this, and then Tim Burton came on, because Tim Burton was sort of like, you know, as I mentioned, a, a surprising commercial filmmaker, and they decided to get him, because like, hey, it's the Batman guy, he made Batman, like, not more than 10 years prior to this, he can, you know, do something weird and get people interested, and, uh, Adam, this was your pick, so, um, we'll, we'll go a bit we'll, on your thoughts, then, on Planet of the Apes. By all rights, I don't even know how it, a Tim Burton Planet of the Apes movie should have worked because it could have been just so bizarre and weird and with his particular aesthetic and everything, it could have been a really cool, quirky movie. Because, I mean, the first ones can't be as hell. The originals are campy. I'd argue the only thing that works about this movie is the makeup. Just the idea that not only did Mark Wahlberg not do Ocean's Eleven so he could do this movie, mm-hmm. Tim Roth didn't play Severus fucking Snape so he could be in this movie. On paper, I get why in like 2000, no, 2001... I mean, playing, signing on to be Snape in a kid's book adaptation, yeah, I get why it was might have been the more riskier well, you know, yeah, yeah, right, plus. exactly, because at that time, you would have figured, like, Tim Roth's not thinking, oh, man, this is going to last for ten years, I'm going to be, like, beloved by so many people with Severus right, Snape. Right. Right, he's just thinking, like, oh, you know what, how about this reboot of a franchise that was successful at some point that has cultural relevance? I could probably do something with that. And I just feel more bad for him, because not only that aspect of it, but the fact that apparently his experience in the makeup was, like, the worst he uh, like anxiety attacks and a lot of like just such trouble in that makeup and, and he's can, trying yeah but he's just so uncomfortable you can just see it he's so just over the top with the constant grunts and everything i mean it just doesn't 
So, you know, I, I will say the one person who I think works in terms of performance-wise in the 8 makeup, I would argue, is Paul Giamatti. I think 100%. is perfect in that part. It's like the sleazy human slave trader. The fact that he stays consistently, like, sleazy and weird this whole time. Where He's also another guy where I'm like, why wasn't he in more Tim Burton movies? Yeah, I mean, are you kidding me? A hundred percent. He looks like a Tim Burton character. Michael Clark Duncan worked. Uh, Carrie Tagawa worked. You know, there's a lot of them who really gave their all in these suits. I mean, it could not have been easy. There's just... The human actors that you're supposed to get behind are all so terrible. What are you talking about? I loved Mark Wahlberg as mouth breather male. And then Stella Warren mm-hmm. as mouth breather female. I thought they were so I, I, great. As Christopherson as older tough guy. <laughs> as Chris Christopherson in a loincloth pretty much. Yeah, it's just Chris Christopherson playing Chris Christopherson. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, I'm gonna get shit. <laughs> Catch you fuckers at a bad time. And it's it feels like it's three hours long. Right. Like this movie just drags and drags and drags and drags. And then the fucking resolution you get. Like, the bigger problem is just that, one, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you that Tim Burton was the best person to pick to reboot Planet of the Apes at this particular time as well. Sure. Because, I mean, it, it definitely feels like the studio had such heavy hands in it, and that what their hands were was just, like, make it more of an action movie. And despite making two Batman movies, Tim Burton's not an action director at all. No, not at all. And I guess what I meant by that is if Tim Burton would have been allowed to do a Tim Burton version of the movie, mm-hmm. it, it could have it could have potentially been something pretty cool. Uh, but no, he, dude, he was restrained 100%. I mean, there's no question. The only thing that felt like Tim Burton in this was like their armor. Right. With the designs on the helmets and stuff. Right, where it almost looks like sort of beetle crustacean things. It leads to the one good moment of the battle which is where the Fade character, like, stabs somebody with his helmet. I actually mm. like, oh, that's a creative idea. Um, but then the rest of that battle is just like, it goes on for Ooh. fucking ever. And it's the lead-up of, like, they're in that desert for half the movie. Oh, I know. Oh, and just I know. fucking mulling around doing nothing, or, like, doing that weird, like, attempted connection where it's, like, Helena Bomb Carter's trying to say, like, oh, I'm totally for you, Fade, as a trick. And he kind of buys it, but he also doesn't. And that, Why? why are we spending time doing this? And because there's so much that contradicts where like, it wants to be a big action movie. It wants to be a war movie. It wants to be this sort of weird sci-fi movie. It has bits where it kind of feels like the political satire of the original movie to a certain extent, Um, especially with maybe the worst scene of the movie is the Charlton Heston cameo. I'd argue that's one of the three worst scenes in the movie to well, me that kind of tied. Well, I think it's it's just especially hurts because it's the most direct parallel to the original movie with him saying, damn them all to hell, and also the gun connection, which feels weird for a lot of levels because it's Charlton Heston <laughs> as yep. well. It's oh, there's no, oh, there is no question that was on purpose. What usually works about Tim Burton is through sort of, like, quick flashes usually get a sense of the world. Like, Beetlejuice says that excellently. Where you don't get a lot of exposition, but you get a sense of, like, the undead world and how that relates to humanity and all this other stuff. Versus, in this movie, it feels like a fucking theme park show. The way that the sets look, oh, the way that all the characters are walking around. Absolutely. That's a great call. It's like the Planet of the Apes uh, Splash Park Spectacular. 
<laughs> they got fucking microphones all pinned to them with the dude cheesy dialogue. And the sets look that bad, and it almost feels like, is this like the Flintstones, like the 1994 movie specifically, like leftover sets? They just put moss on and shit. Just, it feels so small for like, oh, this yeah, is a it, Planet it, of the Apes. And yet here they are in this one cave that we're just going to move a bunch of fucking bullshit around to make it look like a different area. The world building of like, oh, here's an ape that takes off his wig. Oh, here's a weird sex scene, kind of. Yeah. Or foreplay or something. I don't know what the fuck's going on with that. Trivia, that's Lisa Marie, and this was the last movie uh, they worked on together before uh, Tim Burton dumped her like a bad habit as his girlfriend and interestingly started dating Helena Bottom Carter. Yep. Yeah, I know, which is weird because then, you know, hey, I'm going to kiss this monkey. (laughs) you know what's weird we didn't mention this i'm so surprised we managed to get a tim burton double feature without johnny depp at all in it i'm kind of glad that's true i'm glad that worked out that way in fact did either of our oh yeah my other choice had johnny depp and so did my other choice yeah we could have gotten the johnny depp double feature i'm so glad we did because there's so much more baggage to that (laughs) at this point what 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 are you talking (laughs) about did what what did johnny do uh, nothing. He's living out there, clean, healthy, sober. Uh, on his, on his island with all his wine? Yeah. <laughs> Violent. And uh, just really just still a master of the craft. Really uh, takes his time with things. Um, <laughs> yeah. We gotta go to Mark Wahlberg, because for a variety of reasons, that's such a weird choice. I don't look at Mark Wahlberg, especially this era Mark Wahlberg, and think, NASA astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> Never once would I be like, yeah, that guy's an astronaut. Because, like, what works about Mark Wahlberg when he is cast right is like, oh, he's blue-collar schlub. But mm-hmm. the most the the most beautiful definition of that with his massive muscles and all that other shit. He's the sort of peak beauty that any blue-collar boss knight would seek to be. Obviously, he's right, like, the best-looking guy in Southie. Yeah, how's it going? <laughs> hey. You're right. <laughs> like, it doesn't quite work when he's supposed to be this astronaut who... Also, I'm not sure the movie really knows who that character is supposed to be because he's, on one hand, kind of supposed to be like, oh, look, I love animals. Look, here's this monkey. I gotta go after him. And then abandon him when at the end of the movie. <laughs> but I also know military tactics and try to shoot guns and blow stuff up. Right. Hey, let me hit the little button, make my little rocket ship go zoom zoom into the sky. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the genius of the Charlton Heston character in the original Planet of the Apes that most people forget about, because most people would have the perception of like, oh, he's the guy who screams, damn you all to hell, and he's over the top. But in the original movie, he is the most cynical hero to ever have as the lead if you're like your big sci-fi movie. Because oh, literally wow. the opening, he's like, hey, why'd you take this mission? Oh, because humanity's terrible and I wanted to go to a world where they weren't around fucking things up. <laughs> it's just like, damn. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so they send his trained chimp out and he has to go try to rescue it and that's how he ends up on the planet of the apes. Right, the, the time vortex, and specifically, it is mentioned as a completely different planet because it has twin moons and suns and all that shit. So it is definitely it's not Earth that they're. It's on. not Earth. No, isn't that the biggest crux of the original? That's the whole point. <laughs> right, which makes that ending make even less sense when he actually goes back to Earth, and it's like, how did any of this happen? Washington, yeah, it's it's fucking Washington D.C. But with apes, and it's like, wait, that makes even but less sense because you traveled in time and did this, and it, apparently, like Tim Burton literally said, "Oh, this wasn't supposed to make sense. I just had a fun ending cliffhanger for some person to pick up on later," which feels like such a dick move. It's like, here, 
Solve this. <laughs> That's him not giving a shit at the end. That's him just giving him something. I gotta well, right. end this fucking thing. Well, so, here you go. Right, because Tim Burton principally has never cared about plot. In his even his best movies, like oh, plot yeah. matters so little to him as much as brief sort of fun character moments. And this one has the least amount of those because most of these apes are either extremely bland or trying way too hard. Especially like Fade Tim Roth. Tim Roth feels like he's thinks, oh, I have to be like Rodney McDowell and over enunciate and overact because I'm in this ape makeup, but the reason that worked for Roddy McDowell and the other people in the original movies was because that makeup was so inherently limited. It's great, don't get me wrong. But yeah, but they, you had to overact to emote through it. Right, as opposed to the Rick Baker makeup, I agree, is like the principal thing that works about this movie. Um, wasn't nominated at the time, um, probably because everyone's like, oh, get this away from us. Even though it, I would argue it deserved some kind of attention. I mean, especially in a world where fucking Beautiful Mind was nominated that year for its makeup, and that makeup's terrible. <laughs> it's... Uh, the worst old age makeup whereas this it's such a phenomenal design and interestingly rick baker took this because he wanted to sort of do a better job than his disappointing work he felt with the king kong remake from the 70s which you can tell he's putting into overtime where like the apes are very expressive feels almost flawless when they're around the human characters in a way that i was really glad to see but just the problem is the people in the makeup aren't given a lot to do and as you mentioned, the human characters are also terrible with the underrated terrible moment of this movie because there's so many ones that are obvious. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. Right, the underrated moment that, especially upon this rewatch, I'm like, oh, Tim, why did you even approach this? Is our one black human character talks to one of the humans who's around the apes all the time and says, he's a house human. I'm like, Tim, stop. Oh, Tim, Stop. God, oh, yeah. oh, that is... I, oh, you can't do like, that. that for... well, I, I mean, someone could potentially do that. Not Tim. Tim Burton is not infamous Tim for like... Burton. No. no. He's the whitest, pastiest motherfucker around. He could not do that and make it work whatsoever. Um, That's saying the studio involved. Tim Burton is also not one to really insert some kind of message into his movies either. Beyond, like, I'm a goofy outcast and maybe I should grow to love right, people exactly, more. Right, right exactly. Or we should all just kind of love each other. That feels like such heavy-handed studio involvement, it's not even funny. It doesn't quite feel like that. It feels more like that's just left over from one of several different hundreds that, of millions That's of what I was going to say. It, this movie feels like they took, like, maybe five of the 40 unpublished scripts for the remake that they had and just kind of mashed them all together. Yeah. Took the parts they liked and were like, all right, here you go. Because the Mark Wahlberg character could have been Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. It would have worked fine. Actually, it would probably have been funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Arnold's kissing a monkey. (laughs) Imagine that fucking set where it's Arnold Schwarzenegger being directed by Tim Burton. That's the weirdest thing. That would be crazy. (laughs) What's this? What's this? This is magic in the air. Look at all these black and white stripes. There's a sandworm coming. Who are you, lone boy in the corner? I am just a lonely, separated boy from the world. I have no <laughs> one to love me. That would be so awesome. <laughs> I want to see... I just want to see someone do that. Like, use video editing and insert Arnold Schwarzenegger to all Tim Burton. Like, just replace Johnny Depp with Tim Burton. Oh, dude, Edward's, Edward's hands would be so funny if it was Arnold Schwarzenegger. It would be the... the Chocolate Factory with Arnold? Well, that's really weird, because interestingly, the to go on a tangent to, to that movie, the second choice of Johnny Depp couldn't do it for Tim Burton 
was Dwayne Johnson. For Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? For Willy Wonka, yes. Oh my god. Which would have been oh. really interesting considering him at that particular point in like 2005 where he barely had a film career. That could have changed oh everything. <laughs> oh, crazy. Wow, okay, anyways, back onto yeah. this shit. That's like, what? <laughs> To, to transition with that, because I recently rewatched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I have a lot of issues with that movie, but that at least feels like Burton is having a bit more fun with that style, with that concept. It fits him far better. Like, something like this, or weirdly sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, the one movie I would argue is that's worse is, like, Alice in Wonderland, where that yes. feels more sort of like it's try it's him so trying, like, this is what you want, right? This is what you want for me. This is all you ask of me. Sweeney Todd didn't do that well, so this is all you want of me, isn't it, audience? And it's like, it, it just feels like he's trying too hard there. And that also, that feels more studio-involved because that movie's on fucking rails for, like, a bad YA story. Like, it, yeah. it, it is so much of, like, it's Tim Burton's style condensed into the most generic, bland, boring bullshit story. For Alice in Wonderland, a story that, by its very nature, doesn't have structure to it. Right. Hundred percent, and like I said, you know, just just really piss poor CGI everywhere, and just it, just horrible acting. I, I I've seen that once. I didn't even bother with the sequel, obviously, but I will never watch it again. Would you agree that that's worse than Planet of the Apes? Uh yes, yeah, simply because Planet of the Apes, as terrible as it is. There's still a curiosity factor behind it. Like, how? What were they even trying to do here? I don't understand what they thought the outcome would be. I mean, I mean, the movie made a pretty decent amount of money. It made almost $400 million. I mean, that's a big chunk of change, especially right. for back then. Right, and it could have been definitely a movie that could have had a sequel, but the problem yeah. is it sort of fits in like a Godzilla 98 or Last Airbender thing, where technically it made enough to warrant a sequel, but people hated it so much. Right. that they backtrack on it. And that's the thing, is that despite this being, like, a big studio push for Burton, it was definitely an example of, like, him trying to do something outside of his usual comfort zone and really failing, and this is one of those rare cases where it's like, yeah, you definitely should have pivoted away from this, because this didn't fit him whatsoever. It just, it, it has so many weird odds and ends that never coalesce together, and it's despite some, a few people being decent, like, Paul Giamatti, like I mentioned, is the, that bit that Arian was like, hey kids, who wants some aspirin? Who wants to buy it? Great. Right. That's, that's a great little bit, but it's it's still so too little too late, ultimately, for this big mass feeding mess, where especially you got, like, Mark Wahlberg, where I don't know what's open more, his mouth or his nostrils. His nostrils are massive. You could fit a a newborn baby's head inside of his nostrils in this movie. Right, and he's constantly got the wide eye look. Mark Wahlberg looks genuinely just uncomfortable. More so than even Tim Roth does in the makeup. He just looks completely uncomfortable, and it just feels like everyone is doing a different movie. Everyone involved on some level is in a completely different zone, and no one's coalescing together. And it makes for a massive disaster. Uh, but one that I agree based on pure just train wreck factor makes it slightly better than Alice in Wonderland, which is a bore. And that'll be my final thoughts, so I don't know what you have to say to add to that. I, I, I nothing. <laughs> I, I just don't, I can't fucking believe this movie. I can't, I can't believe that with all the talent that was involved, 
this is what we got. Mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, you know what? I'll say that it also gives me a lot more respect and credit for what would come later, obviously, with when they rebooted Planet of the Apes about 10 years later. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I like those three. I got problems with a couple of... But they're all, fuck, stacked up to this one. Jesus, they're Citizen Kane. Well, and that was the thing. I remember when Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the first one was supposed to come out, everyone was completely doubting it. Everyone was, as opposed to the lead up to this movie, where it's like, they were advertising the fuck out of this movie. It was supposed to be like the big hit of the summer. Tim Burton, Planet of the Apes. It was fucking everywhere. And Mm -hmm. then it came out and was so reviled that it literally, for ten years... There was such a black mark that when I saw trailers for Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I remember, myself included, everyone was like, oh, God, they're going back to this. Me too. Uh, too. I was like, oh, fuck me, with James Franco? How is that going to work? And it was coming out like at the end of August, and everyone was like, oh, this is going to be something they fucking dump out, no one's going to give a shit. And it was actually pretty good. Really good movie. Yeah, (laughs) really good way to reboot the franchise. Because they had more of a cohesive vision versus... Mm -hmm. Say this, this one. <laughs> garbage fire. Yep. And on uh, that loving note, uh, that is the end of our double feature on Tim Burton. Uh, but before we do our random picking for next week's topic, uh, we have some feedback to read because every Monday we put out on the at DEDB pod Facebook and Twitter page. That's our Facebook and Twitter page. We ask you all, hey, what your favorite and least favorite things related to this particular topic that we're going to do? And so we asked you all best and worst Tim Burton movies, and we're going to go through some of them here. First, uh, Rachel Hillis says, uh, Love, Corpse Bride, Beetlejuice, Sweeney Todd, Sleepy Hollow, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Did Not Love, Dark Shadows, The End of Edward Scissorhands, Frank and Weenie, and Batman Returns. Um, Brian Kane says, I loved Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice as a kid, but my favorite from him today is Ed Wood. I hate Alice in Wonderland for the annoying, edgy, YA classic fantasy trend it popularized. Masik K says, Best, Ed Wood, Worst, Planet of the Apes. Uh, James Rodriguez says, Tim Burton helped cement my love for Batman, so I adore what he did with the character in his two films. As for worst, I can't stand his take on Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Christian Alvarez at JediKid0622 says, Best efforts, Beetlejuice, Batman 89, and Ed Wood. Worst efforts, Beetlejuice and Dark Shadows. Um, Elwood Tiberius at Elwood underscore Tiberius on Twitter says, uh, been done with Burton's sellout phase since Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Alice in Wonderland clinched it. Creative peak Beetlejuice. Having been 12 and Ed Wood came out, uh, probably means I need to revisit as the better piece of filmmaking it probably is. And, uh, Wesley Boltler at Wesley Bout says, um, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, and Mars Attacks are the best. I'm gonna go and... I mean, it's probably wrong, but I'm going to call Wesley Bout, Wesley Bautier, because it looks like it could be that, and I think that's a very sexy name. Um, anyways, those are all pretty, I mean, it's all pretty much across the board with most of the feedback. I cannot believe that uh, Charlie got one for a love, and same with Corpse Bride. I have not, I think Corpse Bride is so boring. That's the one that feels the most, like, to prove that, like, he didn't direct Nightmare Before Christmas. It's like, oh, wait, Henry Selleck clearly gave so much more yeah. life to the stop motion than he quite did. Even with Frankenweenie, you could tell. It's just like, he loves the stop motion idea, but he doesn't quite know how to do it for a feature. Vincent, it's perfect. It's short, and it's, sort of, the charm of that is that it doesn't feel 
Like it has mm. as much sort of uh, like money behind it, especially. That's I think right. what makes both they both feel a bit more soulless with those versus like what you know Henry Selleck did with Nightmare Before Christmas has so much more of like charm and stop motion buoyancy to it. Um, and he's also very bitter about sort of that connotation where like Tim Burton was too busy doing like Ed Wood to really do anything on the set of Night Before Christmas. About a week before they put it out in theaters, they slapped his name at the top. Just because he did some of the character designs and Because he came up with the basic story and then the character designs and produced the movie, yeah. Which, um, yeah, and it's been sort of the albatross around his neck is how this That's... movie's so successful but has his name irrevocably attached to it mm-hmm. in that way. Well, it was a way to sell it. Uh, it's, and, it's, it's just... and it's one of the most profitable movies of all time. <laughs> the merchandise still sells like crazy. Yep, people still, still fucking wear Jack Skellington bullshit all the time. Dude, I, I still see people getting Nightmare Before Christmas tattoos and buying blankets and Christmas ornaments and all that bullshit. And it's like, grow up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like that movie too, but also... Sure, it's it's a it's look. I was never like crazy over it. I appreciate it for the art form. I really do. I think it's fucking fantastic when it comes to that. But the rest of it's like, man, it's just, it's it's all right. It helps that it's only like seventy five minutes long. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, that, that's the perfect length for it. Um, but you know, I will say, um, I was interested because Rachel said that she wasn't a huge fan of the ending of Edward Scissorhands specifically. I would argue that's kind of what makes that movie work as well as it does. I wouldn't want them to end up together and shit like that. I would just what worked. Yeah. Right. Or for him to like be accepting the community and whatever other stuff, the tragedy of him just as like this fairy tale creature that has to go back up to the castle and never be around again. Rewatching that movie recently, the ending sort of music swell, especially I think that ending version of like the ice dance music is I think the best bit of score Danny Elfman's ever produced. I agree, because I am not a huge Danny Elfman uh, fan as far as scores. I think a lot of his stuff sounds very, very similar. Uh, which it could be a good thing, I mean, you, it, if you want a Danny Elfman-type score, but some of it almost sounds identical. <laughs> like, just regurgitating the pieces of music. Right, I've even heard that, like, this is not just Danny Elfman, but a lot of other, like, big composers do this, where, like, they come up with sort of, like, the theme of their movie, and then they have sort of other composers ghostwrite stuff and kind of put similar things in there from their earlier scores. And it feels yeah. like Danny Elfman, especially around the time of, we didn't even mention either of the scores for Big Fish or Planet of the Apes, um, but especially Planet of the Apes feels like that. Like, the opening theme yeah. is like, oh, that works fine, and then after that, it's just like, background noise. Doesn't right. matter. Right, 100%. Big Fish, honestly. I mean, well, kind of. That, I don't really a, notice this too much. That's interesting, because he actually got his first Oscar nomination for a Tim Burton score he did for that movie. That's the only that nomination sure. that movie even got. How did Batman not get a fucking Oscar nomination? You're an immediate win or Beetlejuice and these other scores. Right. <laughs> they were so amazing. Um, but, you know, I do also want to say with Edward Scissorhands, the underrated MVP of that movie, I realized upon rewatching it recently, the black cop character who initially, like, nearly shoots Edward at the... Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Right. And then later on when, like, the psychiatrist is like, oh, he's completely cut off from the world, but he'll be fine. And the cop's like, I just feel so worried about there's so much regret and so much passion in that dude's performance for like three scenes and later on when he just shoots in the air and he's like go off and run he feels so betrayed uh credit to the the actors dick anthony williams r.i.p great underrated supporting actor uh, i thought you were gonna say anthony michael hall i was like wow that's very that's also interesting about that movie because that was his first sort of non 
nerd brat pack role because he buffed right, the a, fuck a, up. No, he's like a big beefcake. Yeah, and and I mean everyone's mentioned it, but yeah, Ed Wood I would argue is his masterpiece. I haven't seen Ed Wood in dude, it's got to be fifteen years. Oh, got it. That back pocket's I, getting I bigger. I gotta watch it. I have to. Re- I always want to rewatch it. <sighs> I just always forget. Like I literally always forget. I think that's that's another great example where he showed a lot of restraint. And then people mm-hmm. didn't respond to it, so he went back to doing some more of his fantastical stuff. Which, to be fair, in the late 90s, you got, like, Mars Attacks and uh, Sleepy Hollow, which were fun, for sure. Yes. But, to be fair, we almost got around that time the uh, Superman Lives, which would Oh, for been. God's sakes. Oh, I'm so fascinated by how terrible that movie looked. Did you see the documentary? I did see that documentary. Oh, boy. Definitely, that's an example where, it's kind of like Planet of the Apes, where I would have been more interested in the making of it than ever seeing maybe the movie necessarily. <laughs> I, but I almost would have rather that one than the Brian Singer one. Well, yeah, because the problem with that movie, amongst other things, boring. it's boring, but also it's just kind of retreading old water at the same time. That would have been distinct. A mm-hmm. Nick Cage-Tim Burton collaboration. Also, another actor where I'm surprised he's never worked with Tim Burton after that. <laughs> I know, which is crazy to me. Because, yeah. I mean, especially nowadays, you figured he'd, I, well, Tim Burton's not really doing much, but you figured Nicolas Cage would be all over Tim Burton's radar. We got the documentary close enough. Too but can we, can we get somebody to do the documentary about all these different Planet of the Apes movies, though? I want that an extensive t- documentary about me that. Too. Me too. Um, Absolutely. With concept art and everything else. Yes, for sure. Um, and then we had some feedback about our last episode about um, people playing multiple roles. Um, David Maynard says, too much goodness to pock into one movie, but you made it over the hump. Oh, God. <laughs> that made, that's both the best and worst bit of feedback we've ever gotten. I hate and love bad one-liners. Yes. That, well, thank you, Mr. Maynard. Don't ever write it again. <laughs> uh, Chad Hunt says, J.J. Abrams has the same nose, which he's referring to the Dan Aykroyd character, which... Upon, like, looking at it, we post this on our Facebook page. I know. It, he's not that wrong. There is no identifiable urethra. But, That's true. But That's what's missing. It's That's close. The key. It, right. It's close. And then uh, Ryan Quarterman, at Ryan underscore Quarterman on Instagram, said, Prestige and Nothing But Trouble are the same movie. Don't let the liberal media convince you otherwise. Well, I mean, you could tell that if you were watching closely. Right. That was the trick. Yes. You want to be Dan <laughs> <laughs> Uh But thank you for all that feedback. We also want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarta for the art on our show. She accepts commissions at fiverr with two rs.com slash ee Scarta. And then you can find us on Twitter at DEDBpod and also Facebook, where, like I said, we post every Monday about those, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite examples for our next topic? And we're also uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com where you can send feedback to us in a more longer written format. Um, and then I have an individual account uh, on Twitter at NotTheWho'sTommy where I'll post my silly things. And I also write at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. And uh, Adam is somewhere in a dark corner in black and white stripes just trying to find someone who can hold him even if he can't hold them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That sums it up. Yep, pretty much. Um, and then make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us there, or on our various other different platforms like Spotify, YouTube, 
Stitcher, all these other places. I'm almost wrapping this. I don't want to. Right. <laughs> but right. Sick lyrics. <laughs> sick lyrics, yes. The Tim Burton episode is the perfect place for it, too. But yeah, just uh, rate and review us there so more people can watch and listen. I guess more listen than watch, necessarily, but... Yeah, you can't really watch. I mean, if you want to just watch the picture of our logo. Yeah, you can watch your music player push play on it, and our cover art just silently stare back at you. As you yeah, you can watch the, the little abyss. bar move as the... Uh... <laughs> episode plays um it's time for our picking for next week's show which um there's a lot of comic book movies coming out in the next few months um we even have when we're putting that out there will be a dc comic movie though we've already covered dc comics adaptations and then there's also um a marvel movie coming out next month but we've already covered most marvel adaptations there's hellboy coming out in april as well and we figured um what about the ones that aren't adapted from dc or marvel comics properties Let's do an episode about those. I'm drawing a complete blank. What's the DC movie coming out? Shazam. Oh, yeah, I don't care. Oh, no, oh, no I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't pronounce that right. Shazam! Yeah, that, I mean, out of all the ones coming... Well, no, that's not true. Shazam looks like it could be fun. Avengers, you know, I mean, you're going to have to see it. And then... <laughs> no, I don't give a flying fuck about Hellboy. That seems like, like such a movie. All. Like, who is that for? Because, <laughs> like... I, I guess Mike Magnolia fans, which is such a small group, I don't get why it was worth putting all that money into. It just looks like a mishmash of the first two Del Toro movies. But without even, like, that same enjoyable design of Guillermo Del Toro. Like, those movies weren't even that successful, but you're going to do another one as a reboot? Yeah, I I don't understand. I don't. Honestly, if you were going to do another Hellboy, it should just been like an animated one. Yeah, I, they did a couple of those, but yeah, do like a not. I mean, you can't get a budget like you could for Into the Spider Verse, but you know, it's something along those lines. Yeah, right. If it's just like something that was feature length and had a similar sort of look to the style to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, but so uh, for those who are new, uh, basically at the end of every show, Am and I have two movies that fit this certain topic. We don't know what each other picked. But each of us have assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for both those movies. And Adam has the two good movies for this topic, and I have the two bad ones because we switch off on that quality. And each of us will pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal our fates for that next one. So for your two good movies, Adam, I'm going to pick number 6. At number 8, I have the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, the 1990 movie. Okay. Yes, sir. I do. I am a, still a fan of that movie. All right, and then what was uh, your other choice? I had number two, I had Dread with Carl Urban. That's such a good fucking movie. <laughs> I know. It's great. It's so great. <laughs> it's fucking great. Appreciate sure. Oh, man, now I, I don't want to pick. <laughs> oh, no matter what I pick, I guarantee you I've probably seen it, and it's going to hurt. Um, number three. All right, Adam. Number one, I had the um, seminal 90s pick that's uh, so hashtag TM edgy, Spawn. Fuck me. (laughs) You know, I'm watching this show last night because I couldn't sleep. It was that old geeking out show that Kevin Smith used to host. Uh Uh-huh. And they went to McFarland Studios, and he had a life-size Spawn in there, and I literally went, I bet I'm going to have to fucking watch Spawn. 
for this goddamn podcast. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Uh, my favorite superhero, Nostra Adam Thomas, over here oh. picked it correctly there. Um, though at number eight, Fuck. I I had um, one that's probably a bit better to me, but still not great, is uh, 1995's Tank Girl. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I mean, it's that's. Oh, let's put it this way. I enjoyed Tank Girl more when I saw it the first time than I did Spawn when I saw it the first time. So I guess that's saying something. Spawn didn't have Lori Petty. Or Naomi Watts or Malcolm McDowell. Oh, God, that's right. Naomi Watts is in that movie. I completely forgot about that. Or Ice T. Ice T is one of the kangaroo guys. Okay. He just <laughs> that's right. Like Ice T would <laughs> yep. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but we still got Michael Jai White and John Leguizamo and all of that. Oh, fuck. God. To talk about it. next John time. Leguizamo. I just shit on John Leguizamo this episode. Now I got to watch a movie that heavily features him <laughs> and also play a dwarf again. Yeah, that's. The, I would argue. I think he's trying to play just a short guy, but we'll get into all that next time. Until then, folks, um, we're just going to cast you off into the wind and say good night. Long live the Tooch. Also, someone who should have been in a Tim Burton movie at this point, probably. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, I would argue. Anyway, good night, everybody. Long live the Tooch. Good night.